Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Patent pause, the U.S. ready to waive vaccine rights, but will everyone agree? Voting bust up, the U.K. and France arguing over fishing rights and dialogue ditched. Relations between China and Australia worsen. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us this Thursday as we focus once again on India's worsening health emergency. There are growing calls for a sweeping national lockdown. The government's chief scientific advisor has warned that a third COVID wave may now be inevitable and the nation has seen another day of record case numbers. In the face of this, it's perhaps no surprise that nations like India and South Africa have been pushing for waivers on intellectual property protection for vaccines, simply trying to speed up the distribution. The biggest surprise, perhaps, is that the U.S. government has said it supports that push. Watch out, big pharma, vaccine developers, Moderna and BioNTech falling on that news yesterday and are down some pre-10%, as you can see there, pre-market as we speak. The industry says and believes a waiver would suppress research and development and innovation and do little actually to help the near-term availability of doses too. We'll be discussing very shortly on the show for now. As you can imagine, that weakness leading the Nasdaq lower for a fourth day in a row. Futures relatively unchanged, as you can see at this moment, and a little bit higher there for the Dow. Plenty to watch across Asia and in the Asia session once again. Japanese stocks making gains despite calls in Tokyo for an extension of the state emergency there, less than three months out, of course, from the Olympic Games. China also back from holiday too. Shares there under pressure too amid growing international tensions. And more on that as well coming up on the show. But for now, we begin with an update on India and a catastrophic surge in cases. More than 412,000 new infections, nearly 4,000 deaths in just one day. And as the vicious second wave sweeps across the country, a top government advisor says a third wave is inevitable. Vedika Sood joins us live from New Delhi. Vedika, we continue to pray that we start to see these cases and the loss of life come down, but it's simply not happening yet. It's not, Julia. Just imagine yourself in a war. You're losing your soldiers, you're extremely fatigued, and everything all around looks dark to you. That's what India is going through right now. And then someone comes across, perhaps the commander of the army, and he says, you know what, there's another war to be fought, and we're going to go ahead and fight that war as well. That's what the top advisor has told India as of Wednesday, that there will be a third wave that will hit India and we need to be prepared. It is inevitable it will hit. We're already struggling right now. Hospitals still need oxygen supply. People still need hospital beds. And we're now told that this is going to be a long battle. In fact, 
According to a study at the India Institute of Science here in India, India's numbers could more than double by June 11th is what they're saying as far as the caseload is concerned. And even the death toll could be almost two times of what it is today. So these numbers are already staggering, like you mentioned at the top of the show. And now we're being told it's going to be a long haul. Along with that, in the health ministry press briefing yesterday, another official did mention that there could be a link between the variant that was found in India India and the number of cases in India that are surging for the last month and a half, although the clinical correlation still has to be established. So that's where we stand right now. This is the first time you had the health ministry come out and say, yes, there may be a correlation between the Indian variant and with the cases that are surging in India till now. They were just waiting for some kind of findings to take place, which are still to be expected in the days to come, Julia. Yeah, and we'll continue watching. Uh, stay safe, Vedika. Thank you for that report. And we'll catch up with the doctor on the front lines later on in the show. For now, Vedika Suit, thank you. U.S. pharma stocks facing selling pressure after the Biden administration said it's willing to waive patent protections for COVID-19 vaccines. It's in response to a request by India and South Africa, as I mentioned. But vaccine makers, well, they're pushing back. Patents are not the limiting factor for the production of, um, for example, our vaccine. There are a number of important factors in producing vaccines. Uh, for example, our manufacturing process involves more than 50,000 steps, all of which have to be executed accurately in order to ensure efficacy and safety. David McKenzie joins us now from Johannesburg. David, it's interesting, isn't it? It's like a, a chef saying, look, I can share the recipe, but if you don't have the ingredients, we're not going to be able to produce whatever it is. And in this case, of course, it's, it's vaccines. But India and South Africa have been asking for this information. Well, yes. I mean, to continue analogy, it's like a chef that owns the restaurant and uh, to the critics is deciding who should be let inside, to be honest. Uh, 80% of the world's vaccine doses have been given to high and middle income countries. Uh, low and uh, low middle income countries have just not seen that amount of vaccine doses. And critics, uh, including here in South Africa and India, say that is partly because of patent restrictions. Now, there is certainly a significant debate going on whether manufacturing would be possible to build up in the short term or whether even the members of the WTO can come to an agreement within a span of a few months. It was a surprise to many that the U.S. administration, the Biden administration, backed waiving, temporarily waiving these patents. Uh, but if you just look at the timeline, even if this takes several months and even if manufacturing is difficult, developing countries face a pandemic that could last for several years. So getting this right in a way that everyone's happy with is something worth fighting for, say those here in South Africa and India and other countries. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? Because this is the US government putting big pharma on notice. As I mentioned at the top of the show, your innovation, your R&D is fair game in a situation like this where we have a global pandemic. And as we say many times on this show, no one's safe unless unless we're all safe. But it has left the likes of the EU, Switzerland, uh, Brazil, the UK sort of fighting, scrambling to decide how they're going to respond. And we're still we're still waiting for that. The big question is, even if it doesn't help in the short term with increasing manufacturing capabilities, can all of these nations come together just to in some way find some kind of global coherent strategy over vaccines? Because we don't have that right now. 
No, and I think the talk about solidarity has, frankly, been mostly talk. There yeah. have been moves by the COVAX Global Alliance for Vaccines to get vaccines out, and that has been laudable, say public health experts. But understandably, in a way, nation states have wanted to protect their own citizens, but many have uh, ordered more vaccines than they actually need. But you do sense a political shift, I think, on this issue, partly because of the horrifying scenes you're seeing in India, the prospect of a really bad wave in Africa, uh, in certain countries and other parts of the developing world, and the scenario that you have young, healthy people being vaccinated in the global north and people with no possibility of vaccines in the global south to a large degree. I think that politics is shifting. There's also just an interesting practical matter here. You know, research I spoke to yesterday from Duke University said you'll soon get to a situation where the supply in the U.S. outstrips the demand, and then you could get into a situation that maybe these talks at the WTO aren't necessary necessarily in the short term because there could be a lot of vaccines available. But in the next few months, I think it's that critical window where really the the lack of solidarity, the lack of any kind of equality is going to punish poorer nations and as a result not help sort out this COVID-19 pandemic for everyone, given the prospects of scary new variants developing. Julia? Yeah, lack of equality and lack of coordination to do better. Therein lies the key. David McKenzie, thank you for that. Okay, now to a fishy face-off between France and the UK. I'm talking fishing rights, by the way. Both nations sent Navy patrol ships to the Channel Island of Jersey amid an escalating row that has led to a blockade of one of its ports by French fishermen. Salma Abdelaziz joins us now. I think, Salma, you know, we as Brits or those in this uh, game understand what on earth's going on here. But I think for the rest of the world, they're just like, what on earth? Please explain what's going on. Absolutely, Julie. And I just want to start by showing you a couple of newspaper headlines, because if you woke up thinking Britain is about to go to war with France, you might be forgiven. Here's one from the Daily Express. Boris sends gunboats to defend Jersey. Another one here from the Daily Telegraph. Uh, PM sends Navy to face the French in Jersey. So you have some very dramatic headlines there. But Julia, let me break this down. There's the micro and there's the macro. What's happening on the island of Jersey? This is a channel island just 14 miles from France. There's been rules that have been governing the fishing islands, the fishing rights off of Jersey since the 19th century. Those were overturned, of course, by Brexit. That caused friction, that caused tension. There was a temporary amnesty announced that expired on May 1st, and then the Jersey government began doing what the Brexit agreement says it should do, which is it issues the fishing licenses to the French fishermen. Now, French fishermen say those licenses were not being issued fairly, essentially that there was a barrier to entry there uh, that kept them out of waters that they have historically been in. And now we have today this protest, 70 vessels, French fishing vessels, just off of the coast of Jersey. Uh, the British Prime Minister responded, of course, by sending two Navy ships, uh, saying he fears a blockade potentially, that they are there to monitor the situation. The French fishing protesters say that is not their goal. It is a maritime demonstration. They 
do not intend to blockade the ports, but you can see all of this escalating. And while both sides say, now is the time for, for calm, now is the time for talk, you hear Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying he has unwavering support for the people of Jersey. You hear the French government saying they're willing to cut off electricity to the island. That would be critical because it, it depends on electricity from France. Over 95% of power comes from France. But let's talk about the bigger picture. Why is this all happening now? Well, first point, there's an election here in the UK today, and it comes at a very difficult time for the prime minister who's been in the headlines in a very negative way lately, Julia. Uh, um controversy over potential corruption in his government, controversy over his handling of the COVID crisis. And then today, of course, people going to the ballot box and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, some critics might argue, is doing what he does best, raising that British flag, raising, uh, if you will, the call for nationalism, the call for Britain. And that could be very dangerous when you're talking about a Brexit agreement that's only been in place for a few months now and could cause more friction, Julia. Yes, this is war, Summer, and actually one individual in Jersey taking matters into his own hands. I saw some video of him literally firing a musket shot, looking full regalia there at some of the French boats. I mean, wow. That look, Now that is some dedication to the cause. Summer, we shall see how this uh, plays out. Wowzers. Summer, up to the seas there. Thank you. All right, relations. Taking a turn for the worst between China and Australia today, too. China announcing that it's cutting off economic dialogue with Canberra indefinitely, stoking fears that Australian exports will suffer. Australian markets falling on the news, too. David Culvert joins me now. David, how important is this dialogue strategically or symbolically? I mean, we, you and I have talked about the deteriorating relationship between these two countries. But as far as this dialogue is concerned, how recent has it been used we have been talking about this, a deteriorating relationship. I mean, a lot of attention has been focused on the U.S. and China. But, Julia, as you point out, China and Australia in the midst of a deteriorating and worsening relationship now. This is mostly a symbolic partnership, if you will. It's the China-Australia Strategic Economic Dialogue. It's a bit wordy. But the reality is it hasn't been used since 2017. started in 2014, so it is relatively new. But the whole idea behind it was bringing together both countries at the ministry level, having discussions about investment and business opportunities, and moving forward with putting those into action. It's come to a halt now. China on Thursday saying they are suspending that for now. They cite what they consider to be a Cold War mentality put in place by Australian officials. They don't go into too much detail, but they say essentially it's ideological discrimination in their words. Now, Australia has pushed back, saying that they consider this suspension to be disappointing. They go on to say that they hope they can reignite dialogue in the near future. But the reality is we have seen between China and Australia over the past year plus this worsening relationship. And it goes back to not only what we're seeing now in this breakdown in dialogue, but also actual tariffs being put in place by China on Australian exports, everything from wine to barley to beef. And it's had a real impact. More than 60 percent in 2020 of Australian expert, uh, exports were impacted in this, Julia. And, and anecdotally, I can tell you, I was speaking with somebody who's an executive in hospitality here. He pulled me aside. He works for a Western brand hotel. He said it is a real struggle right now for them to be continuing to import something as simple as Australian beef, for example, because at the local level, you've got officials who will come to that property, if it's a hotel, this one in particular, tell them they need to halt 
bringing in anything from Australia, particularly related to beef. So this is something that's playing out at, at the local level too, but uh, they're trying to figure out how long it'll go on for. Now, people like uh, the gentleman I was speaking with trying to find another source for their beef. It is yeah. becoming uh, a struggle for many of the businesses here, but it's also speaking to the bigger picture of dialogue and conversation. What we thought was going to reignite after the Trump administration, uh, even now with Australia continuing to break down. And all this because Australia simply asked for uh, an investigation into the origins of, of COVID-19. It doesn't half feel That's like right. a bit of an overreaction on, on China's part here, but um, we'll leave that there, David. I am sure we will continue to discuss this in the future. Thank you. David Culver there. All right, still to come here on First Move. Lessons learned. The CEO of online education company Coursera on navigating the back-to-school era. And the Roaring Twenties reboot, or the last century's decade of decadence, can teach us about some post-pandemic pitfalls. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The Wall Street majors struggling pre-market with the Nasdaq on track to fall for a fifth straight session. Investors bracing, too, for tomorrow's eagerly awaited U.S. jobs report. But, of course, the strong gains expected perhaps already priced into stocks at these levels. Ahead of that, though, encouraging jobs data today, too. First-time jobless claims in the United States dipping below 500,000 for the first time since the pandemic. The relatively improving jobs picture helping fuel the reopening optimism that is driving commodity prices higher and, of course, raising inflationary fears. Copper, silver, platinum, all, as you can see, higher in the session today. Copper actually near record highs. Iron ore also at records, too. Just to give you a sense of what we're seeing year to date, lumber soaring 87 percent. Brent crude and copper up 30 percent, plus steel up a mere 27 percent. Rising commodity prices, just one of the forces unleashed by the pandemic that will fuel the growth of some emerging nations and leave others behind. So says my next guest, a digital revolution and necessity, the necessity of economic reforms too, will be key to the rise of some nations and perhaps the fall of others. He is Rishir Sharma, Head of Emerging Markets and Chief Global Strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, and he joins us now. He's also the author of the book, The Ten Rules of Successful Nations. Rishir, great to have you with us. You, you produce so many great reports, it's tough to choose what to talk about, but it is the impact of the digital revolution that caught my eye. We often talk about it in terms of our experiences in the developed world, but for emerging markets too, particularly as a proportion of the economic output that's derived from the digital sector, this is huge. Talk us through it. Yeah, hi, Julia. I think that this is a new driver of economic growth in emerging markets because the cost of adopting technologies in emerging markets has fallen dramatically. Just to put this in context, a decade ago, the number of smartphones in the world was barely a billion. Today now, you have more than 4 billion smartphones in the world, which basically means more than half the uh, population is carrying the equivalent of what used to be a supercomputer in their pocket. Uh, that's a huge driver of economic growth because the amount that you can get done there using the smartphone as an example um, bypasses a lot of the traditional infrastructure. What's the problem for emerging market growth in all these years and decades? They don't have the good infrastructure. There's lots of corruption. And here comes a digital revolution, which is able to bypass that. You can do banking 
via your phone on corruption. There's much better building of trust when you're able to transact uh, using a digital record. So therefore, I feel optimistic because there's been so much pessimism that where will the next leg of growth come for emerging markets, particularly in an era of deglobalization? I think that if you, the digital revolution keeps spreading, and it is, the growth in digital revenues in emerging markets, as you point out today, is twice as fast as what we're seeing in the developed world. So this, I think, is the new driver of growth and why I have changed my mind on emerging markets over the last few years. And, and digital revenues, to be clear, are growing far faster than the overall economy. So if you look at the overall economic growth rate, it sort of belies what's going on beneath the surface. Yes, and I think that it's offsetting a lot of the other negatives. You know, the traditional model for growth in emerging markets was that you would export your way to prosperity, that you'd make manufactured goods and you'd export them to the rest of the world. That's how China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan all grew. Now, there is a market for that. There are a few economies which are still doing that, such as Vietnam or Poland. But in general, that market is shrinking because the world is moving much more online and also in an era of deglobalization and tariffs going up. It's not easy to play that game. Uh, so I think that, therefore, focusing more on the domestic economy and enhancing your productivity by making it more digitized is the way to go. And many emerging markets are following that example and doing that. And China has been exhibit A of that, that the Chinese economy today, the digital revenues and the share of its economy is twice as large as the United States. That's a huge statement. Yeah, the United States is a slug doing its best, but uh, trying to digitize and it's being just outshone by what we're seeing, not just in China, but I think in Southeast Asia too. I mentioned commodity prices as well and the dramatic rises that we've seen this year. Do you believe the revival that we're seeing will endure? Yeah, I think commodities go through these very uh, you know, uh, cyclical patterns if you look at the last 200 years of data, which is that they have a down decade, then they have an up decade. Because So what's happened on commodity prices are two things. One, a lot of the excess capacity which was there in commodities, from oil to copper, a lot of that excess capacity got cut over the last few years because we had so much supply and prices were so low. So producers cut their capacity. Now demand is also coming back in some sort of a new form, which is that the big theme in markets out there is this green wave, as you know, that um, the world wants to go more green and build new infrastructure around that. So therefore, uh, copper for EVs, uh, silver for solar, uh, solar panels. It's the demand for commodities is coming back through that route. So in a way, uh, the green wave could be the new China for the commodity markets in terms of lifting demand. And that again is happening at a time when supply has been cut. And by the time the producers bring new supply back onto the market, it takes a few years, it takes a long time to set up such capital investment. So commodities are in that sweet spot. And lastly, inflation. I think that people want to start owning assets which they think are a hedge against inflation. So owning homes, owning commodities is a diversify in your portfolio away from just owning stocks and bonds. And the weaker US dollar, to your point as well, about the inflationary aspects that we're seeing here as well. I mean, there's a mind-blowing stat from, from one of your latest reports that 21% of all US dollars were printed in 2020. I don't even know how to approach how you invest in that kind of world. That is a mind-blowing statistic. I guess what first came to my mind was, um, I see a reason to buy cryptocurrencies, perhaps. Or a justification. Yeah, that's I mean, you know, 
Yeah, we spoke about this uh, last year in September, and I sort of had said that at, the, at that point in time, and uh, I wish I had put my money where my mouth was, uh, because you know, because back in September, I think that's the mistake you know, we all did to make, even as investors, uh, which, you know, the cryptocurrency, you know, back then was 10,000 or something like that, 10, 12,000, and here we are, and people ask me the question, would you still do it now? And my point is that, listen, the size of the cryptocurrency market in Bitcoin is just over a trillion dollars. The size of the gold market, which was traditionally considered as the hedge against inflation or against too much dollar uh, debasement, is more than $12 trillion. So there's considerable scope for the cryptocurrency market to keep growing, I think. And uh, yeah, I mean, these prices appear very frothy just now, but uh, it's definitely something you know we have to think about to again own in the portfolio rather than all these central banks uh, printing currencies and debasing them as that statistic uh, is absolutely correct. Uh, and the other central banks in the world are not too far behind in the amount that they are printing. So people are looking for alternatives and the cryptocurrency is obviously one such alternatives with Bitcoin in particular because its supply is limited, unlike what's happening in terms of dollar printing. I mean, you make the point as well that 27% of millennials own crypto currency or digital assets, just 3% of boomers. I mean, these are the guys that have pensions to worry about and perhaps retirement, hopefully, at some point. Do you think that percentage could dramatically increase as people get more comfortable with the space? Yeah, I think that what we need to see on the cryptocurrency market is for the volatility to stabilize a bit. What's, I think, scares that's a lot happening. of people. Yeah, exactly. It's falling now. You know, so the volatility is there and I love the way that everybody rushes to a headline every time Bitcoin falls by 10%, it's over, it's cracked, <laughs> it's finished, uh, and it keeps coming back at you. So I think that uh, as volatility drops, people will become more comfortable with the idea of owning that in the portfolio. But I think that's what concerns a lot of people. And so therefore, yeah, this demographic uh, split is really quite fascinating. And I think it tells you about many things in the world. You know, uh, the other trend I speak about in terms of gaming, that uh, the older generation is still wedded to seeing movies and seeing uh, uh, even online streaming. And the younger millennials and all, they're all, uh, you know, doing gaming. So the gaming awards now draw, you know, like, I think as much if not more of an audience than the Oscars do or something. So it's like a whole <laughs> shift going on. And we are still like, you know, split along demographic lines in terms of what the older generation is watching, seeing, consuming, investing versus what the millennials are doing. You know, I love our conversations because I start somewhere and I never know where I'm going to end up. But I have about 30 seconds. Rishi, right? I started talking about emerging markets and, and picking winners and losers just super quickly. Who do you think, if you had to pick the ultimate winner, perhaps, of the next five to 10 years in terms of EM markets versus who may really struggle? What would you say? I'd say that for me, the winners uh, in terms of the you know, I wrote about this a while back. I think Vietnam is the next East Asian economic miracle. Uh, it's picking up where China left off. Uh, so, uh, so that would be one of my winners. I still like Eastern Europe a lot. I think that the next developed countries will uh, and are emerging from Eastern Europe, uh, Czech, Poland, uh, you know, being two classic examples. So those are some of my favorites. And I think that countries which are not able to use any of this technology or, you know, have some route to growth are going to struggle or where politics plays a big uh, role. Like Latin America today is struggling uh, just because in Latin America, uh, populism is completely trumping any positive effect from commodities. So I think that that's how the split is emerging today. But uh, yeah, 
if you were to uh, pick one country, and I know everyone loves doing that, I think that Vietnam is on course to being the next, uh, next East Asian economic miracle after China and before that, Korea, Taiwan, Japan. So that's the spring from there. I've not been there for a long time. I must go. Rishi, great to have you with us, as always. Thank you. Rishi Sharma there, the head of emerging markets and chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Great to chat, as always. The market opens Thank next. You. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday in the Wall Street majors, searching for direction, I think, ahead of key employment data out of the United States tomorrow. Some encouraging corporate stories, though, in the meantime, consumer products giant Kellogg raising its full-year guidance. Volkswagen, meanwhile, reporting that electric car and SUV sales doubled last quarter. It's raising its guidance, too. Uber, meanwhile, reporting a much narrower-than-expected loss, saying the company's, quote, starting to fire on all cylinders, but shares are pulling back as it sets aside $600 million to pay its British drivers more after a recent UK court ruling. Peloton, meanwhile, under pressure too after Wednesday's 14% drop. Peloton announcing that it's recalling all of its treadmills amid safety concerns. Okay, let's bring it back to our top story today. India reporting the highest ever daily surge with more than 412,000 new COVID-19 cases. Almost 4,000 people lost their lives in just one day. As the world's second most populous country is being devastated by the second wave, a top government advisor issued a major new warning. A phase three is inevitable, given the high levels of circulating virus. But it's not clear on what time scale this phase three will occur. Hopefully, incrementally, but we should prepare for new waves. Dr. Bonali Datta is the Director of Respiratory Medicine at Medanta Hospital and joins us now. Dr. Datta, thank you for, for making time. I know you're incredibly busy. Just explain to us what you're dealing with at this moment and how it feels to hear a government advisor say something like that, a third wave. Yeah, so um, very demoralizing, actually, because we are just in the thick of the second wave. And it's ironical that the first wave actually went by quite smoothly now that we look back. And we and we seem to have completely dropped our guard in all regards, you know, the, the population, the government. And now we're in the throes of a, a really bad wave. And we're seeing a much more sort of, you know, much more infectious, more virulent, a very accelerated version of what we saw last time, both by way of an individual disease, as well as the wave that's sweeping by us. So the, you know, all of us were dealing with it as doctors, pulmonologists, uh, physicians in the hospital, which is seeing younger people, sicker people with uh, really bad, you know, x-rays and CTs, opaque x-rays, CTs, uh, needing high flow oxygen. And then of course, you know, the, the thing of running out of oxygen and, uh, Drugs, we don't have much by way of drugs. It's just high-dose steroids. And we have 30, 40-year-olds who are just keeling over, people not getting hospital beds. So it's a very dire, dire and grim kind of a situation right now, which I think everybody's experiencing, whether we're healthcare workers or just a layperson who is terrified of what will happen if they fall sick. You're, I believe, one of the most sought-after private hospitals for treating COVID-19 patients. What does that mean for who you can accept as patients coming into the hospital and also your access to, to supplies, as you were just mentioning there, things like oxygen, but also basic levels of, of supplies of medication. 
Yeah, we are fortunate in sort of working in a setup that uh, we do, the private organization, which is uh, uh, state of the art, and it has all facilities, many beds, uh, good staff and, you know, good levels of care that we're providing uh, in spite of everything. But of course, beds will always be a limitation. It's a, you know, 1200 bedded hospital, which is one of the biggest private hospitals that there is. And uh, more than half uh, of the ward beds as well as ICUs. We have almost six functioning ICUs for COVID and uh, six floors, each with, say, 55 beds. So, you know, we have up to 500 patients of COVID at the at this point in time in hospital. Now, uh, I mean, and obviously, uh, people do access it who have access to it, and uh, but we cannot cater to everyone. And that is obviously a shortfall. And, uh, and that's just the way, I guess, healthcare services work that unfortunately infrastructure is not enough for a population our size and for the requirements of our size and that's that's terrible now oxygen wise again we are fortunate that we do have oxygen supplies although we are you know we, we're sort of on the brink of running out of it and then we have to uh, freeze admissions because uh, at least we have to look after the patients under our care and uh, and then of course it it gets it gets eased for a while and then it again uh, dips a little bit so you know we, we're still going through that vis-a-vis -vis ad, uh, availability of medication i think we've been all right we know there's not a great deal of medications that we you know uh, use in covid we are limited to high dose steroids maybe remdesivir maybe one of the tocilizumabs and things like that and uh, and i think we've been fortunate in that we've not had major problems running out of it but uh, you know that can't be said for the uh, for the vast majority of hospitals uh, around the city as well as in other parts of the country. I mean, you've been commended by the government during the last wave for saving lives. I've watched your videos where you're explaining to people how to use oxygen condensers at home. I think for us internationally that's watching, we've seen international countries businesses sending aid to India, but we're sort of confused about how the process works to actually get it to hospitals. What's your sense of, of what's going on with the oxygen shortage? Does the country actually have enough oxygen? It's just, I guess, wealthier people perhaps that are scooping up all the supplies and then it's creating shortages. Is there a better way to be addressing this? Can you give us your wisdom? Yeah, so it's, it's difficult. So in hospital, the one thing you take for granted is oxygen supply. You know, I've never, ever, you know, come across a situation where we don't have oxygen. And we had a meeting recently where our chief said that, you know, we may be running out of hospital. And that's sort of like a death knell almost. So that's quite scary. Now, uh, piped oxygen, what we use in the hospitals is obviously that is what uh, is, is running out, is in short supply. So all hospitals, I think, across the board have procured many uh, concentrators to use an alternate source of oxygen from, from air, from ambient air, essentially. Now, international aid, obviously, uh, we have had, we have received a lot. And this goes to the government, and then it is distributed amongst government hospitals, which are also, you know, uh, fighting this battle alongside. I mean, private government, now all the boundaries have been blurred, and everybody's sort of together in this, you know, enormous battle against this virus. So you're right in the sense of uh, scooping up oxygen. Well, you know, concentrators, now they do cost, and there is short supply, and uh, people who can afford it will buy one and just keep it as a standby. And that's sort of that kind of hoarding and panic buying, which then leads on to the black market and, uh, and, and you know, people who do need it then end up not getting it. So it's a very, it's, it's a very complex situation. Ultimately, we, we, our healthcare services overall are just overwhelmed with this yeah. second wave. And I think that's the reality. 
Dr. Jasser, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. Um, you and your team, of course, saving lives. We appreciate you. You're our heroes. The Director of Respiratory Medicine thank at Medanta Hospital. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back to the show. The pandemic suddenly put online learning at the forefront of education, whether it's students in need of degrees or workers looking to reskill. In Coursera's first report card since its IPO, Q1 revenues rose 64% year on year with 82 million registered learners. More than 13,000 students were taking degrees. That's up 88% on the year before. And it's now partnering up with the likes of Facebook, Microsoft and Google to offer more qualifications in tech. Jeff Magin-Calder is CEO of Coursera and he joins us now. Jeff, fantastic to have you on the show once again. That is a lot of people registered to use your product. How many of them are actually active, taking courses or versus just browsing? You know, it's it's really a wide range. We have millions of people at any given time studying this or that. And as you said in the introduction, some are deciding it's time to get a college degree. They're typically pretty intense. They're working pretty hard to get that degree. Others, to your point, are sometimes browsing. One of the most popular courses is one from Yale called The Science of Well-Being that talks about how you can make choices to make yourself happier. Those folks uh, sometimes will dabble a little bit here and there to find some of the, something that they like. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the sudden growth and the conversations you were having with colleges and universities as they were saying, look, we, we want to keep people's education going, but we have to bring them online and do what we can. What are you seeing now as particularly in the United States, but in other areas, people are starting to go back to schools, college for next year. How is it going to look like for you going forward? Well, it's a little bit interesting, I think. It'll, do, it'll vary uh, country by country. I heard the segment before mine uh, around India and the oxygen supplies. And we have a, a large staff in India. And, you know, it's heartbreaking to see how difficult it is in India. So the difference between, uh, say, being at, at Duke University, where you know, all the students are now pretty much vaccinated, the campus is getting ready to open back up versus students at other country, um, uh, in countries around the world is very different. What we're seeing, though, is in the U.S., many colleges are deciding that all the students must be vaccinated if they want to come back to campus. What's interesting is because people can do remote learning, it's almost a choice, probably not unlike Mm. offices where Google just this morning said, if you want to, you can work remotely up to 20 percent of the employees or you can go back to work. I think students will be able to continue to learn online or go back to campus, but only if vaccinated. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see. And to your point as well, and our hearts are with with your people in India as well. Um, talk to me about the tech sector because this is quite fascinating. I mean, when I see that you're partnering with Facebook, Google, IBM, Salesforce, there's a, a transition of career opportunity here, but there's also an upskill of those workers even within the jobs that they're doing to perhaps transition within companies. Surely that's a huge opportunity for you too. It, it, it really is, Julia. And I don't know that people are uh, really aware of how many job opportunities there are today and will be growing in the next mm-hmm. five years. Microsoft estimates that today there's about 41 million, they call it digital job capacity. So the number of digital jobs today is about 41 million. They think it's going to grow by another 149 million in just the next five years. And many of those digital jobs, you can learn how to do without a college degree without any prior experience, and you can learn the skills fully online. And then the final thing I'll add 
is many of those jobs increasingly can be done remotely. So even if the job opportunities are not in your community, and even if the college is not in your community, you can learn online and you can work online without having to leave your community. I think that's, that's an extraordinary opportunity for many people. Yeah, whether it's the workplace and this global talent pool or the ability to get education wherever you are and make it applicable somewhere else, this could be incredibly transformative, I, I think. Um, what's going to be the biggest challenge? Because I look at how much money you're spending and clearly you're in a, a growth phase. You're rapidly trying to expand. Anything to concern you there? Perhaps need to raise more money or are you comfortable with what you're doing and, and how you're operating in this growth phase? Yeah, we're, we're feeling pretty good. Um, if you look at our uh, free cash flow, it's about minus $9 million. So uh, on that, we add free cash flow about mi- minus $9 million. After the IPO, we have about $800 million on the balance sheet. So we're feeling really good that the company is growing nicely, that it's is sort of exhibiting the kind of operating leverage that we're looking at. We are continuing to move closer and closer to profitability, but mostly we're really trying to drive those growth rates, as you said, our our revenue growth overall was up 64% year on year, and, and we think there's a big opportunity to serve the world. Yeah, there's a reason why I mentioned those in the introduction. <laughs> Jeff, great to have yeah. you with us. Keep coming back Thank and talking to us. Um, good to see you working. Jeff, CEO, of course. Good to see you, too. Thank you. All right, with stock markets at record highs and rampant consumer spending, the US economy looks pretty similar to the roaring 20s, but doesn't mean we're in for the same stark ending. That story after the break. Welcome back to First Move. A global pandemic and American consumer with a seemingly endless desire to spend on what looked like an unstoppable stock market hitting record highs. It's hard to believe it was just a century ago. And now some economists say the U.S. may be on the verge of another roaring 20s. Claire Sebastian has investigated. A time of post-pandemic euphoria, excessive drinking and stock market speculation. Low inflation, easy money from the Federal Reserve. There's a surging sense that tomorrow's going to be better than yesterday. One step down, two steps up was the mantra in uh, the 1920s. Between August 1921, the start of the 1920s bull market, and its peak in September 1929, the Dow Jones Industrial Average grew more than 500%. Compare that to today's 20s, the Dow already up more than 80%, since the pandemic-fueled panic last March. And behind those numbers are ordinary people. Today, amateur traders attracted by free trading platforms and social media stars. Stocks always go up! A century ago by another form of entertainment. Your broker would have a customer's room uh, with a Translux stock ticker, which is a big thing that a whole crowd could observe. It was like watching a movie. The illegal drinks flowed in the underground speakeasies of the 1920s. Few, it seems, were even aware that the boom years could come to an end. But a cocktail of risks were taking shape, and some of that cocktail we're still drinking today. People began to have the opportunity to buy stocks in the 1920s on the margin, only pay 10%. Trading with borrowed money or margin trading became popular in the 1920s, and the risks were not widely known. Today, while margin trading is better regulated, it's still causing major volatility in some assets. 
I think the GameStop phenomenon sobered a lot of people. And also the Bitcoin phenomenon, the up and down and up. But it, again, what they take from it uh, as so far hasn't been much discouragement about the stock market. And beyond the stock market, there's another historical risk in the mix. 20 million Americans lost their job in the pandemic, working the middle class Americans. At the same time, roughly 650 billionaires in America saw their net worth increase by more than $1 trillion. Income inequality, which hit a 20th century peak in the U.S. in 1929, now rising again. And history shows us that makes the economy less resilient to shocks. The rich, of course, when a recession or depression hits, um, they have a lot of disposable income and they can withdraw it and pull it out. And the middle class can't. So with them unemployed, there's no money being infused into the economy. And the recession really turns into a depression with remarkable speed. Today, the U.S. has a much more proactive central bank and a government already spending on social programs. The lesson of the last Roaring Twenties, always be ready for the music to stop. Claire Sebastian, CNN, New York. So yesterday we told you about an out-of-control rocket crashing to Earth. You'll be pleased to know today we have some better news for the first time ever. SpaceX's Mars prototype rocket landed perfectly in Texas. It took off, it soared 10 kilometers and then descended safely. Look at that. Just incredible. Previous attempts, well, they hadn't gone quite so well. There was a pretty fiery ending to an earlier test. Ouch, look at that. One day, SpaceX hopes to use a rocket to carry humans to Mars. Yes, fairy tale endings only, please, no fiery ones. Wow. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.